Hi, I'm Gina Shock from the Go-Go's, fabulous drummer of the Go-Go's. Hi, this is Tony Levin of King Crimson. Hi, this is David Fishoff of the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Hi, this is Richard Evans. I am the author of Listening to the Music the Machines Make. Hi, this is Teresa Kariakis, punk rock photographer. Hi, I'm Tom Bojour, author of Nothing But a Good Time, and you are listening to Modern Musicology. Modern Musicology. Modern Musicology. You're listening to Modern Musicology, so, you know, Pay attention, you might learn something. You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Modern Musicology. This week, we are going to be talking about the year 1978. Our gang is here. Stephanie Seymour. Hello, people. Rob Levy. Sup. 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 And we are setting the dials on our time machine back to 1978. 1978 is a good year. There's a lot of great stuff going on this year. Oh, yeah. So let's just dive right into it. No time to waste. <laughs> we have a whole bunch of really, really important debuts that happened this year. First albums from really important bands and a, and a couple of releases that are absolute game changers. Ones that just like you can see the, the, the road ahead is curving, but then all of a sudden there's a sharp left turn or something and we've got a couple of those the first one that we have um the earliest one in the year february 10th the debut album from van halen what, what? dude you dude. talk about changing everything everything holy like yeah. all in one basically eddie yeah. van halen's eruption uh yeah. you know kind of one of the greatest guitar solos of all time really popularized oh, yeah. the two-handed tapping thing mm -hmm. you know, that he did I yeah. yeah, I mean, it was just, and it, it sold more than 10 million copies for them. So this is one of their biggest albums. Um, peaked at number 19 on the Billboard Top 200. And I mean, there's so many great songs from this. Jamie's Crying, Running With The Devil, Ain't Talking About Love, which if you watched early MTV, that was on like every two seconds, as was <laughs> um, their cover of You Really Got Me By The Kinks. So yeah, this yeah. was this was a great one. Oh yeah, my two of my absolute favorite Van Halen songs ever come from the first album, and that is oh. Atomic Punk. Oh yes, and On Fire. I feel like those those two songs, the whole album was like nothing like you'd ever heard before. And it wasn't just Eddie; it was it was David Lee Roth's delivery. It was his vocals, his yeah. sort of like that weird scream that he does. It was Alex's the, the, drum sound. Oh my gosh. Yes. And you know, Michael's bass and yeah. backing vocals. I mean, this was just like the I whole know. package, but I, th I think that those two songs, atomic punk and on fire were so different from anything else that had happened before them. And eruption. Oh my gosh. And right, like, of course, eruption. I mean, yeah. that goes without saying, because that changed the way every guitar player thought about their instrument. It, and, you know, 
people just sat around there and they're like, how did this even, what is he doing? How does he make those sounds? There is a great Kerrang! magazine review um, that I picked out because it said, it was basically his sound on this album remains the holy grail of guitar tones. That's, you know, that's how much. But I also love to find a bad quote about a good album because I think it's so funny at the time. (laughs) I love those. So I found one from Rolling Stone critic Charles Young. Of course, it's from Rolling Stone. Of course, right. (laughs) So he said, in three years, Van Halen is going to be fat and self-indulgent and disgusting, following Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin right into the toilet. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot for that one. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Man. And the you know, the nice thing about the internet is that all of that stuff lives on. You can it find it like that. It does. It's you can't funny. hide, you can't hide your your short sightedness from decades. You it's gonna be right there to find. Yep. <laughs> that's so funny. What's your what's your favorite song from it? Um, I think my favorite is is Ain't t- mm. I kind of love running with the devil, maybe a little more than ain't talking about love. I mean, when you when you start off that the album with that like the car horn kind of sound, <laughs> and then it goes to that boom, 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 and then holy cow, it's just such a great song. I know it just told you this album is going to be different from anything you've heard before. And you're right about the harmony. Like, just think about that running with the yep. devil. Like, and yep. and yeah, it's like oh. God, that's anyway. so good. <laughs> I, I will say I, I I kind of like Van Halen too more, mm-hmm. but there, you can't argue with with this first album. I mean, there's it is one of no. the best debut albums ever recorded yeah. in the rock era. It is, and you know, I, like you're saying, your favorite album might be or you like Van Halen too better. I mean, I, my, for me, mine is Diver Down. I know a lot of yeah. people aren't crazy about that record but like that's just to me my favorite but um this yeah you're right this nothing how can you kind of top for the for this genre you know yeah so and one week after van halen's debut we get the first full album from kate bush the mm-hmm. kick inside kate bush had a huge 1978 actually she had an ep and two albums out and that's kind of when the tide shifted because really when kate bush came out as is the as is the same now. Nobody sounds like her. Mm-mm. Nobody's really making records like her. Yeah. Um, and she completely sort of just changed the rules of female recording artists um, and how they go about releasing their records. She just simply told the label, "These songs are done. I don't want to wait a year. I don't want, you know, I want to. I'm an artist that creates. I will think of new music. Put them all out." And she was pretty adamant about getting two records out. And they're both great. But that first album is just fantastic. It still holds up well. Yeah, I love that first album. What's your favorite track from it? I, I still like the saxophone song. I still like Weathering Heights is kind of the one everyone's going to I think Weathering Heights, yeah. Um, yeah. I still like the saxophone side. But I have to say, as when we were on with, I think, Rob Alsop um, ages ago, I'm still a big fan of Kite. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I haven't listened to that in a long time. Yeah. And I I listened to this record about a week ago, and the production on it still is incredible. It Mm -hmm. doesn't sound dated. Some of the records from 1978, um, you know, they have a little bit of dated production stuff, right? That, uh, alluding to the Van Halen record that you talked about before, 
that record doesn't sound dated either. No, right? it does not. So I think the I think the albums that have done really well uh, are the ones that aren't necessarily of the time. Yeah. yeah. But the Kate Bush especially is is not of the time, and it's amazing. I love the title track, Kick Inside. Mm-hmm. I think that's an amazing song. And the opening track, Moving, I love. There's two piano sort of ballads on there, uh, The Man with the Child in His Eyes and Feel It. And oh my gosh, I love both of those songs so much. So moving on a little bit, exactly one month after Kate Bush, Generation X. That's you can see I'm chomping at the bit for this one. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> because, all right. So, yes, it's a self, It's their self-titled debut album. By the way, this was produced by Martin Rushent. Um, so I think this is kind of interesting that the bassist, Tony James, wrote most of the lyrics for this. And Billy Idol, who was a singer, actually wrote most of the music for the album. And mm. it was recorded in one week, which I think <laughs> just alone is pretty amazing. Um and a lot of the, well, not a lot, but some of the songs like Youth, Youth, Youth were done in one take, one take only. Mm-hmm. So um, I, to me, this is like, you list the songs from this and it's just like hit after hit in a punk rock way, but it's from the heart, which basically, basically it was one of the songs that meant so much to me that I almost got the lyrics, rock and roll made me free, tattooed on myself, which I, I still might do. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. 100 punks, ready, steady, go. Kleenex promises, promises, which like Kleenex is so great, but promises, promises like a fucking punk rock anthem. Kiss me deadly, day by day, youth, 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 and then they, their cover of "Give Me Some Truth" by John Lennon was fantastic. Um, so, I think this was by far their best album, and sort of everything from after this is sort of downhill. Like they sort of burn brightly on this yeah. gem. Yeah. And then just went downhill. And, you know, one, I want to bring up one thing. One of our listeners brought up a comment on a reel uh, that had Billy Idol on it that our friend Teresa Kariakis, who we interviewed on a previous episode, had uh, had made. They were saying that when Billy Idol and Generation X came out with this band, that they weren't really considered a punk band. But I think what that person meant was hmm. maybe because you know, they were more of a sort of a pop rock punk band and they, they didn't really get political. They didn't really care about um, dismissing the music that came before them, like a lot of punk rock bands did. So in that respect, I don't think they were as punk rock as you, you might consider like, you know, Susie Sue or Mm, Johnny Rotten, but uh, there's still, this has got, this is a punk rock record, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to quiz you. Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot. You're going to have oh to you're going to have to pick one or the other. Oh god. Kiss Me Deadly by Generation mm-hmm. X mm-hmm. or Kiss Me Deadly by Lita Ford. <laughs> there's no there's no question. <laughs> I know Lita yeah, Ford totally. I know. But you oh, know, kid. I like Lita Ford, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's going to it's Genera- Generation X is going to win in my book any day. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. Moving on, June 6th, we have the debut album from The Cars. Holy smackerel. Another thing, if you just read that the song titles, you know every song I'm going to just right. t- list. You know, Just What I Needed. This is like a greatest hits, but it's it, not. It, it really is. Just What I Needed, My Best Friend's Girlfriend, Good Times Roll, Don't yep. You Stop, You've all, You're All I've Got Tonight, Bye Bye Love. What the fuck? I know, I know. It's insane that that much stuff came from one album. Yeah. 
six time platinum. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like an instant classic and it stays, mm-hmm. st- it stayed that way. Right. And Rob, this is to you, a good one. I think to your point, I don't think this sounds very eighties. No, it I'm sorry. Seventies. I'm sorry. It doesn't sound very seventies. I was going to jump 80s. in and say two quick things. One, um, this sort of opened the success of this album, I think opened the door to new wave artists getting played mm-hmm. on the radio or at least power pop bands. Um, Definitely. Um, uh, because I, I just think it just it's relentless. The other thing too is my ten year old brain uh, from from in nineteen seventy eight remembers hearing the Cars on the radio all the time, all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. at least at our station here, and they were one of the first bands that I remember just like always hearing on the radio and knowing who they. Before it was always like, oh, it's the songs or whatever, right? It was, mm-hmm. but literally, I I could just hear. The, I knew who it was, like 32 yeah, chords Very in. distinctive voice, yep. yeah, and, and sound, oh, yeah. But, but yes, of course. Yeah, it's just, I, I just knew, right? It wasn't like yeah. Chicken of the Month Club or whatever, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I just um, I just knew that this was something new and different. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting to me is that how like album rock radio just gravitated toward the cars, and it doesn't sound like anything else that AOR stations yeah. play. You That's know? a good point. And yeah. it was the other thing is that there were only three singles released from the album: "Just What I Needed," "My Best Friend's Girl," and "Good Times Roll." And yet, rock radio took to all these other tracks and just played the hell out of them. Yeah. And another one that we didn't mention earlier: "Moving in Stereo." Oh yes. Which is one of those that only rock radio ever played. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And God, I love that song. You, the other thing too is uh, what in thinking of 1978, sort of in context, um, a couple of friends I knew that did a lot more radio in 1978 than I did were saying that you know, in 1978, a lot of commercial radio was looking for the next thing. Right? They weren't sure what it was. So you're seeing a lot of stuff getting by radio getting thrown on the wall and seeing what sticks, right? Because at this time, the saturation of disco has started, right? Mm -hmm. Where people have kind of had, you had the huge success of Grease and Saturday Night Fever that year, right? But people are starting to kind of get, okay, I'm tired of disco, but nobody knew what the next thing was. So I think that the Cars and Van Halen got their foot in the door because of the timing, not just the talent, but also the timing. The radio was like so hungry. Yeah, good new sound. New, yeah. um, and I think the cars, in particular, really benefited from that because it was so completely different. Um, and they're from Boston, you know, so mm-hmm. it's an East Coast band. East Coast yeah. radio could just go all over them, right? Yeah, it's still yeah. just one of the just a great, great, great album. And you know, like you're saying, if you get a Cars Greatest Hits, half the Greatest Hits <laughs> album is basically this first record. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> yep. April 7th, the debut album from Prince. Now, what's interesting here is that the the debut album was not a game changer. Prince coming on to the scene was definitely a game changer, but that first album just didn't do much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, it, it's a weird album, you know, because it's, it's very keyboardy. Um, and, and it was basically, not basically, it was him in the studio, playing every instrument, writing all the stuff, doing all the background vocals, everything, doing all the mixing, doing all the editing, doing all the production. It was him. And I mean, 
he was being pitched to Warner Brothers and they're like, hey, we got this 20 year old kid. He can do everything. He wants to record an album by himself. And they're, they're like, well, we're not going to pay somebody completely untested, you know, completely just out of their their diapers, you know, to go into a studio. So we're, they basically made him audition for them. And he had to record, mix, edit, and fully produce a complete track from scratch. So he laid down a drum track, and then he laid down the bass part, and then he put down the, the keyboard parts, and then he added some guitar, and then he did his vocals, and then he did background vocals, and then he did the mix. So he did everything, and it took wow. hours to do a song, but they watched him do the entire process, and they're like, okay, we will fund this guy. <laughs> 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 yeah, when you go to Paisley Park, they talk about the making of the first record mm. and how the the label was just completely in awe of like his, the way that he worked, but also the fact that he said, this may not be the record that you remember me for, but be the first one that you've heard that leads to greater things. Yeah. Which is interesting. But even yeah. then he knew. Yeah, and there's some interesting stuff on there. Like the the title song for you is a basically a one minute acapella piece that's really weird. Um, yeah. The 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 only like close to coming a, a hit was called Soft and Wet, which is just <laughs> oh my god, I love that song. It's the funniest title, but I love the song, <laughs> and it's it's a it's a good album. It's 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 way down on the list of my Prince favorites because. You know, the mountains that he would climb from that point are so staggering that it kind of leaves that first album, you know, in the dust. But I think it's great. I, I love it. And when you know that he did the whole thing by himself, it's really an impressive feat. So Prince comes on, you know, eventually yeah. changes the game. Yeah, but not in 1978. <laughs> nope. And really, 79 is where it really starts with I Want to Be Your Lover. But 78, mm -hmm. man, he had to get his foot in the door, like like Rob was saying. Yep. That was April 7th. So we go all the way down to August 28th and Devo. Are we not are men? We, not men? <laughs> we are Devo. We are Devo. I remember hearing this for the first time. It was actually the, ne the next summer because my friend, uh, yeah. I heard it in camp because our bunkmate Jenny Davis's father was a DJ on New York radio. And so my 12 year old brain had to process this record <laughs> or 13 year old brain. Um, it was, it was like the weirdest thing I had ever heard. I thought uh, oh, yeah. I didn't know what, I couldn't even process what I was listening to, but I knew it was cool and I knew I liked it. Yeah. yeah. The fact too, that like the, the, the demo one of the songs got played for David Bowie and Iggy yeah. Pop and Brian Eno and Robert Fripp, and they all were like drop, ready to drop everything and produce them. And Eno did produce it, but yeah, and and Bowie sort of like helped when he wasn't busy on the weekends. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. My, but, my, but weekend, I, my weekend side game. Yeah. Is. <laughs> he was doing a project, and that's why he could only come on the weekends. Sure. Isn't that funny? But um. I don't think they got along with Eno very well. I think that the Eno wanted them to be more experimental yeah. and they, they just had this idea of what they, they used some of his stuff, but not, you know, I think there was a clashing and I think that's why Bowie came in right. to the mix. Yeah. Right. My first exposure, I think this was my first exposure to Devo was when they performed on Saturday Night Live. Oh. And I thought, what the hell is this? 
nonsense. And of course, the first thing you hear, I think it was the, the first of the two songs that they played, or maybe it was the second one. I don't remember, but the, the Rolling Stones cover. Satisfaction, yeah. And you're like, why did they ruin this rock icon? Why did they destroy this great song? I like it now, but at the time I was like, oh my God, this is hideous. See, I don't think I, I know I, this is sad to say, but at that age, I don't think I really knew the Rolling Stones version that well or at all, maybe. And so this hearing this, I don't think I could compare it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard this brought this is my, one of the records my brother brought home, and I I just had this memory of hearing it. Like I'm like, what is this? And little mm-hmm. did I know that I would love it. You know, ten years later, um, but like this, and he brought home another record from '78. We'll talk about later. It was sort of like there there was a lot of weird music coming into my house that I had no idea what it was. That I wish I could go back and tell my ten year old self, pay attention to this more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I just like. Man, that's okay. You can listen to it now and appreciate well, it. No, so. it's just like, wow, my brother does do a lot of drugs. Um, <laughs> okay, so. good way to yeah. find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I asked um, him about it, and he said, "Oh, this is drug music. You wouldn't like it. <laughs> oh, this is drug music. That's funny. That's what I used to get told about Pink Floyd. Oh, this is drug oh, music. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, I don't do drugs, so I guess I can't listen to them." <laughs> So that sort of robbed me of years of good Pink Floyd music. Um, all right. So November 2nd, Outlandos D'Amour. Hell yeah. Police. My favorite band. Your favorite um, band. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite band. Although, yeah. you know, at this time, I didn't know who they were. I didn't. I don't think I knew really who they were until really like 1980 or 1981. But obviously, in retrospect, love this record so much. And my high school band, I used to cover Next to You and Truth Hits Everybody. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, but yeah, this was, uh, you know, I love when you research stuff and you find things that you didn't know. This this record mm-hmm. was recorded for only 1,500 pounds, which is maybe like, what, $2,500? And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. borrowed from, um, they borrowed it from Miles, from Stuart Copeland's brother, Miles. And yeah. Miles, uh, he loved rock. He didn't like a lot of what they were doing at first, but then he heard Roxanne and he loved it and he took it to A&M and they, they right. agreed to release it as a single only, but since it didn't, it didn't chart and they, they basically gave him another chance with, uh, with Can't Stand Losing You and that became their first hit. Mm-hmm. 1500 pounds. And, and they recorded it like in like piecemeal. Because yeah. they, they, I can't remember the name of the studio they went to, but they basically Sorry. did it when they had, when that studio had downtime yeah. or if another band was in and their, their session got canceled, you know, they would call up Sting and they'd be like, Hey, come on down. You got to be here in 10 minutes. Yep. And they would record a song at a time or a bit of a song at a time. And that's how that album put together. It's crazy. Yep. And, you know, I also learned something about the song, um, Peanuts, which I love that song. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That was about Rod Stewart, which was Sting's idol. But then he 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 was like, I guess he couldn't stand what he, what Rod Stewart had become, and they and he wrote that song about Rod Stewart. Although now he sort of disavows that, and he un, he's like, I understand now and have a new appreciation for Rod. That's because he's that exactly. <laughs> he became what he cannot stand. <laughs> Good old Sting. <laughs> All right, so there there were some other debuts that year. Um, Public Image Limited, 
Yellow Magic Orchestra? I don't even know who that is. Yellow Magic Orchestra is uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto's band. Yeah. And uh, a huge influence on electronic music and hip-hop. Uh, we talked a little bit about this last time when we were talking about Ryuchi Sakamoto. Yeah. But um, it's very much like basically new wave. It's basically a lot of new wave sort of synthy, kitschy pop record stuff out of Japan. And it, it it's huge because it influences whole um, cascade of Japanese artists after it. Right. Right. But then it also, you know, it affected you know, like David Byrne and David Sylvian and just um, yeah, a lot of folks. Yeah. We had the first squeeze album. We had X-ray specs. Oh, hell yeah. But we got to talk about Susie. Yes. Yes, we do. Got to talk about them banshees. The thing is about her debut album is it's, it's a little different than the rest of the records because it's a little more punky and a little less goth, right? Everyone always thinks when they hear the scream that, um, you know, if they've never really heard it, they're thinking they're going to jump into a goth record. And it has some of that trademarks, but it's got a lot of sort of like her little punk edge thing going on, right? Um, it's also really claustrophobic. Like when you listen to this record, you can just feel this like lingering sense of isolation and um, – being like in a place where you're just you don't have room to breathe and that i think is is really cool about it hong kong garden is one of the catchiest pop singles ever yeah. made ever ever it's uh you can't really listen to it now without kind of laughing um another <laughs> Beatle, everybody's doing Beatle covers in 1978 the cover of helter skelter is great yeah. too like the Susie cover of helter skelter is great i like mirage um nicotine stain Nicotine Stain mm-hmm. is also really good, yeah. yeah. But in terms of debuts, people didn't really know yeah. what to make a Susie. And I don't yeah. think, because at this time, punk was ending and post-punk was taking roots, people didn't really know where any music was going after punk. This is a strong, powerful debut from a female artist, much like Kate Bush. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's just kind of came out of nowhere. And it's by no means... Um, you know, a classic, but it's really good. Yeah. And I was going to say, it's sort of, it's sort of the, uh, you could see the potential and what was going to come from them, I think, mm. but it didn't really, you know, it wasn't like, as I was saying before with maybe generation X who really had everything in that first album, this wasn't that, but they went on to so much greater things. I think Susie. Another comparison though, I think is that Kate is it has a tendency to be a weird vocalist, but I think on that first album, she was a bit more traditionalist. You know, she got weirder as she went along. When you hear Susie, she's just, she just has a weird voice. And I think it doesn't fit into a box that well. I think that people just didn't know how to process what they were hearing. Yeah. And I don't also think too, that she just didn't really come from a professional singing background. Right. Per se. True. Um, so I don't think there was like, you know, the practicing her voice or anything. I think she just kind of right. went in and did it. Punk know? rock, yeah. maybe. Exactly. DIY, baby. DIY, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there was a lot of other stuff happening in 78, though. So so much. What about some of the other stuff going on? Steph, you want to talk about Billy Joel? I How do you know that that was really I knew, literally? I knew that'd be the first thing you'd go to. <laughs> no, my list. <laughs> See, he's topping it. I mean, okay. 
Billy Joel, everyone knows I love him, but uh, this one, this album is another one of those things when you're just listing songs and you think it's a greatest hits record. I mean, right. Right. Honesty, of course. Big Shot, My Life, Zanzibar, Rosalind's Eyes, Half a Mile Away, Until the Night. God, there's like a million <laughs> hits on this album. Um, and it was his uh, it, the first of four of his albums to reach number one on the Billboard charts. And he won two Grammys. Uh, uh, this was a cool thing that I, I found out when I when I was researching this album. It was the first, if it was the, either the first or one of the very first commercial releases on CD format in Japan. Oh. Um, and then when Sony started manufacturing vinyl again in 2018, it was the first release when they returned to manufacturing vinyl. Okay, interesting. So little, little fun wow. fact about 52nd Street. Uh, but yeah, this, this is, I think, a... Um, a different sound for him in a way because he was trying to hire various musicians of in like the jazz field and just trying to give it a little bit of a different sound from his previous albums. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, million hits on this. Such a great album. Again, this is an album I hear and I think of camp because it was just one, you know, we played it over and over in our, mm -hmm. our camp. But I think we're, we're in that stretch where every Billy Joel album is yeah. just becomes like a, a massive thing. Yeah. And he has such good hits during that period. He did. He really did. He was on a roll. <laughs> totally. The Buzzcocks, mm -hmm. another music in a different kitchen, uh, the first of their two albums that year. Uh, the Sex Pistols broke up at the beginning of 78, and the Buzzcocks were sort of like the first kind of punk, borderline, post-punk pop band to kind of come out of the void. Um it's a really, really interesting record. It's not by any means perfect. Uh, Fast Cars is on it, which is, and Fiction Romance, I think, are the two that most people remember. Uh, but it's great. Also, Kraftwerk's Man Machine came out that year, which, along with the um, Yellow Moon Orchestra, kind of changed uh, electronic music, which is huge. And Talking Heads, more songs mm -hmm. about building and food. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff coming out of New York, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Blondie. You've got Talking Heads, you've got Ramones, you've got Blondie. Um, you know, you've got just so much stuff coming out. Yeah. Of uh, like of just the CB scene, really. Dirty, mm -hmm. grimy, ugly New York <laughs> in the 70s. Exactly. Just a sewer of a city, but just like the amount of music and art that's being made in 1978 in New York is probably like outnumbers half of the art being made today. Right. You know, in, in like Fayetteville, Indiana or something. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> you know, another great thing that came out in 1978, uh, kind of piggybacking with Devo was Rock Lobster by the B-52s. Yeah. Like, what the hell is that? Right. My right. brother yes. was really into the B-52s. And I just remember hearing that, that and then later Planet Claire. And I'm like, yeah. what the hell is this? Right? Yeah, that was somewhat of a Devo experience, right? Like, you're just like, what is this? Yeah, and my first exposure to them was SNL also. And, oh, wow. and just like Devo, I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. Um, of course, they're one of my absolute favorite bands. Now, at mm -hmm. the time when I was just a kid in 78, I did not get it. But Rock Lobster, that was it was a different version, right? Than what they re-recorded mm -hmm. it for the first album, which came out in 79. So yeah. I've never heard that original recording, that original single. I don't think they liked it, so I think they buried sure it. Not. 
speaking of the CB scene and the holding mm-hmm. the Blondie, I mean, this was mm-hmm. there. They were out of it by then, but like Blondie was blowing up with parallel lines. If you think about okay, radio, yeah. you could not turn on the radio and not hear Blondie because yeah. this album again was like a greatest hits for them. This is their third album. It's not their debut or anything, but like hanging mm-hmm. on the telephone one way or another picture, this heart of glass Sunday girl fade away and radiate. Like again, you yeah. just could not, you, yeah. you heard Blondie wherever you went. It, it is an amazing record. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it might be the best Blondie album ever. Yeah, you know what's really funny is that the uh, Chrysalis Records people mm-hmm. were not so happy about the songs, and the producer Mike Chapman had to basically say, mm. "You know, it, you're gonna," and the band too. They were just like, "No, this is this is going to be huge," and they were totally right. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Chrysalis has sort of a history of making weird decisions. And uh, Pat Benatar comes out uh, next year, 1979, and they're on Chrysalis. And they had all kinds of problems with Chrysalis during the time that they were signed to him. So Bob did, too, with his band. Uh Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's cool. All right. So for my first thing that I want to get into, I am going to... I've got so many things that I want to do, but um, I'm going to go with uh, a couple of bands that aren't necessarily linked other than their hard rock and they're both from England, but their, their fates are going to become intertwined (laughs) very, very soon. And in 1978, Rainbow releases the final album with Ronnie James Dio on lead vocals. And later that year, Black Sabbath releases the final album with Ozzy Osbourne on lead vocals. Now, in two years' time, Black Sabbath will have absorbed Ronnie James Dio. He will become the new lead vocalist of Black Sabbath. And they put out probably the best Black Sabbath album ever. And likewise, Ozzy then goes off into a solo career and releases a debut album. This is, again, 1980, a debut album that is just a fucking pile driver. (laughs) It is so I'm not an Ozzy fan, but that first Ozzy album is so massively good. Oh, my God. And a lot of that, of course, you have to say, has to do with Randy Rhodes. What a talent that kid was Mm. holy smokes but um so it's interesting that um ozzy and 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 ronnie james dio they have this sort of like divergent path they um but they they sort of like come into this thing where they have these parallels Mm -hmm. and and it's interesting that in 1978 they're both ending their association with the bands that they're at that time most known for and then Two years later, they come together in a different way and release two of the greatest hard rock albums ever made. Cool. Yeah. So that's just a crazy kind of little coincidence there. Yeah. I'm going to just I wanted to mention there a few in a row that I'm not going to go into them, really. But there was this is just to go to the diversity of the era, because there was mm. a lot of huge, huge bands and that had stuff out that you just could not get away from. I mean, I'm talking about like Rod Stewart with blondes have more fun. And do you think, do you think I'm sexy? Like that was everywhere. Even my father had that record. He played that over and over and over (laughs) in our living room. I was like, dad, what the fuck? (laughs) That that record literally put the U in ubiquitous. (laughs) 
totally. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, let's Bruce Springsteen had Darkness on the Edge of Town come out that year mm. with so many great songs on there. Right, right. Bad, Badlands, Darkness on the Edge of Town. I mean, geez. Uh, Tom Petty was huge with, you know, I need to know and listen to her heart. Mm-hmm. Foreigners freaking double vision was out then. If I never hear that again, that's too many times. But that yeah. album was huge. Yeah, I remember I remember hearing I, I can like I remember a specific moment from that year when I heard the song Double Vision. Like I have this memory of walking into a certain building when that song was playing, like it's a stupid thing to remember, but there it is. No, no. I mean, that that album was all over the place. And you know, also like then in the disco kind of there, chic Mm -hmm. was everywhere with La Freak and I want your love. Oh my gosh. Yes. Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand. You don't bring me flowers anymore. So there was so many weird, bizarre things. And and like another thing was Andy, Andy Gibb was shadow dancing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's all you heard. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's right. I don't think you're talking about the elephant in the room, though. Uh oh. What's that? Copacabana. (gasps) Oh, no. No. Why did we have to bring that up? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, my God. Because I mean, it was everywhere. That, that that's song why. about bringing flowers is bad enough. But Coco Bay, <laughs> oh my God, I hate that song. That thing was everywhere. It literally I, was. In the same yeah. way that you have, you know, you're traumatized by double vision, right? Yeah. I'm traumatized by just um, right. having two sisters and a brother play that thing like, <laughs> on repeat. I mean, right. I remember going into my refrigerator to get milk and there was fucking Coco Gana <laughs> right there. I can't even say the word. Copa Cabana. There we go. And I was like, it's every yeah. fucking where. It is. And it then, was. Um, also, you had, you know, disco was still kind of. Yeah, it was. Thing. So you, you had, you know, the Night Fever was still yes. the best, best hit of the year. But you had, you know, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack was still score, scoring well. And you had the beginning of the whole Grease phenomenon, right? Oh, yes. But then you- you've got um, Rose Royce mm-hmm. and Car Wash, which is. Oh just man! In, and, uh, it, it just in terms of being a pop record, it's great, right? Yeah. And then um, outside the Donna Summer stuff that year, mm. but the uh, Sylvester that you make that Sylvester that very yeah, that, that you make me feel mighty real record by Sylvester is just mm. amazing. I still love that record. I do too. Oh man, so good. Yeah. yeah. So all right. So speaking of disco, I want to yes. get into um, and and I'm and I'm mainly bringing this up because this record label had a box office flop with a movie about it this year. So apparently uh, Spinning Gold, which was the the Casablanca story, uh, played in 700 and something theaters its first week out. Its second week out, it played in 12. I mean, it was that bad of a flop. Well, it's coming to streaming. Of Um, course it is, because what else are they going to (laughs) do? Well, I mean, the plan plan for it was to stream... I think for three weeks and then go to streaming. Right? Yeah, it didn't make it to three weeks though. Yeah. Wow, really? But, I wonder why. I mean, I didn't see it yet, so well, I don't it, know. It's a, it seems like I didn't get to see it because it wasn't playing anywhere in my mm. state by the time I was able to get there. But uh, it, it just seemed like it was a weird movie. Like it, it's portraying all these artists that uh, get signed on to Casablanca. And the first, they basically formed Casablanca to sign, to give Kiss a record deal. And Kiss is portrayed very strangely. Like the makeup is, is not right. Possibly because 
Kiss said, you have to, you can't do our makeup. You oh, have you to do mean something similar. Oh, you this is not a documentary. This oh, is no, like, right. oh, okay, it's a, that's it's a, weird. It's a dramatic movie with a really good cast. I mean, there's some surprising people in it. But I want to talk about the year that Casablanca had in 1978 because it is mm-hmm. massive. Yeah. Um, and there's there's two stories. One is all the different artists that they have going on. And just a quick rundown. You have a band called Angel, which was sort of they were they were sort of marketed as the anti kiss. They were a rock band that dressed all in white and they sort of had an angelic, you know, look about them. And uh, they were sort of like the white version of the dark kiss, you know, because Kiss was getting all the Satanism accusations thrown at him at the time. And that came out in January 3rd. In February, you had the debut album from The Village People. Also everywhere that you could not get away from Macho Man, right? Exactly. Um, in August, you had Donna Summer released Live and More, which was three sides of a live album. And then the fourth side was new studio tracks. And that's where MacArthur Park comes from, which mm-hmm. was an enormous hit. Huge. And uh, Heaven Knows, which was a almost as big a hit. Um, you had Parliament, One Nation Under a Groove, one of the greatest funk albums ever released. Uh, second album by the Village People, Cruisin', comes out in September. Midnight Express, the Giorgio Moroder soundtrack. So Giorgio, you know, is working mm-hmm. with Donna Summer, of course, and he's now got a movie soundtrack out. And somebody I had completely forgotten about, but when I read the name, I thought, I remember that name, Terry Desario. Had an album called Pleasure Train. I can't remember a single song or even what her voice sounded like or anything, but I recognize the name. Parliament's next album, Motor Boogie Affair, came out in November. But the big story from Casablanca, and and that is uh, what Kiss is doing in 78. Kiss has already done like six albums and uh, a live album, two live albums, in just the course of a few years. So they are just cranking stuff out. So to give them a, a little bit of a break, April, they released Double Platinum, which was a, a, a four-sided greatest hits album with some like remixed and, and re-edited versions of like songs from all of their six albums. But then the big story is that there was all kinds of stress within the band and Ace was ready to quit and Peter wasn't happy and blah, blah, blah. So they decided, here's what we're going to do. We're each going to record a solo album. We're going to release them on the same day. We are going to brand them as a kiss record. We will eat. We will have matching cover art, but it'll be one guy on each cover in the kiss makeup. And, but we'll, we'll have the freedom to do whatever we want to do. So four solo albums, this is the, at at that point, the only time it had ever happened in history. I don't think it's ever happened again, where each member of a band releases a solo album on the same day. (laughs) And so Casablanca just has all this. I mean, this is just one year for Casablanca Records and it's just a massive amount of stuff. And all of it was, except possibly for Terry Desario, was hugely (laughs) successful. I mean, they were just rolling in it in 78. I'm I'm trying to think of being the promotion person to work for Kiss Records at the same time, for solo (laughs) Kiss Records. That must have been interesting. Oh, yeah. It it was a challenge. Yeah. So yeah, that was a that was good stuff. So just in case anybody's interested, here are my here's my ranking of the four Kiss albums: Ace Frehley is best, 
Paul Stanley is a really, really, really close second. Gene Simmons is weird and experimental, but I love it. And Peter Chris is fourth. <laughs> that's the nicest and it's not thing bad. I actually like Peter's. Uh, most people hate Peter's album, but I like it a lot. But it's still the fourth of the of the four. So there you go. Cool. Good rundown, Alan. The interesting well, thing too about Casablanca, outside of the fact that I forgot about the chase until you brought it up, but even now I can throw that in a DJ set and people love it. That record is just like um, astounding, right? Wait, which one? And the the chase by Giorgio Moroder. Oh, 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 gotcha. Yeah, uh, from Midnight Express. Um, yeah, Casablanca was really influential in taking the idea of the, the same time they got the whole Kiss thing going on. They're making twelve inch singles. For yes. Studio, for Studio 54, right? Yes. Which at the time was like, what is this? Yeah. Right? They're, so, because uh, I've got a Donna Summer 12-inch from, from Casablanca with just her on one side, and the other side, they didn't press anything on it. Oh, my and goodness. And then it's got a, the, the gatefold. Mm-hmm. It's just the same thing. So it's huh. basically two copies and then two blanks. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So they were already thinking of, like, getting music in clubs. They yeah. were oh, really sure. thinking of everything. But it's interesting, too, that they they form in or, like Neil Bogart, who started the label, was determined to get Kiss a record deal. He believed in him that much and he couldn't get him a deal. So he said, well, I'm going to start my own fucking label and I'll give you a deal. So they go from that to becoming the funk and disco label. Yeah, that's crazy. Talking about like DIY and then boom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. You know, XTC had their first album that year, um, White Music and Go To, um, which was not exactly stellar, you know, but in subsequent years, the profound influence of XTC upon everyone, you know, from Matthew Sweet to Amy Mann to like um, Teenage Fan Club and Tears for Fears, it's everywhere. And then Japan. Uh, made adolescent sex, which is not, upon hindsight, the greatest thing in the world, but that really helped the whole movement of the new romantics, sort of. It did, oh yeah. The whole Blitz Club London thing translating onto albums. Um, You know, Japan and Visage, right around this time, are starting to make records that are starting to kind of do some things. Japan also had obscure alternatives that year. They had two records that year, yeah. I just want to ask... Can we can we talk about the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club? Oh, we're we're, we're so talking. Okay, about okay, that. good. Okay. We are so talking about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if you want to do that next, go right ahead. Okay, because uh, I was I was gonna say like back to my Andy Gibb comment being with him being ever present with shadow dancing. Yeah. Uh, and how huge he was, I I thought it was an interesting juxtaposition. Um about how badly the soundtrack for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the movie, did. Yeah. Uh, And what a bomb it was, considering the amazing amount of star power on the soundtrack, Bee Gees, Peter Frampton. Uh, I mean, it was just, I just don't, and George Martin produced it. (laughs) So it's just crazy what a flop that was. That this right. is it actually I read something where it said that they made history as being the first record to return platinum with more than four million <laughs> copies of it taken off store shelves oh, and shipped no. back to distributors. I mean that's, that's how bad. hilarious. Well, let's let's put this in perspective. Yeah. Peter Frampton had a near fatal car wreck early in nineteen seventy eight. 
And this fucking soundtrack and movie still did more damage to him than <laughs> almost dying in a fiery car. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on. It's, I mean, it is so awful. Oh, all, God. all the things that cocaine did for Casablanca Records, it did not do for the Sgt. Pepper's film project. <laughs> there, that's, that's, that's another good one. I will say, though, I absolutely love Aerosmith's cover of Come Together. And I still love it. Mm. I'm going to commit blasphemy here more than the Beatles. <gasps> I know, I know, I know. It's crazy. But I think that Aerosmith's version is so good. Well, so I mean, there wasn't exactly a total, either. it wasn't a total disaster then, but it was close. The soundtrack was right. close to a total disaster. Yeah. Right. They, the Bee Gees basically, this was, this really did them in for a while. I mean, this was like, mm-hmm. they were just like tarnished, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and we talked about this um, last year when we did our 1977 show. It took took a while for Frampton to get going. Mm -hmm. He released four solo albums that fucking bombed. And 76, Frampton Comes Alive comes out, and it's enormous. It is a a mountain range. And then I'm In You comes out, and it's huge. And then this. Mm, So sad. A a near-fatal car wreck and a near-fatal soundtrack album. (laughs) So I don't, he never recovered from it. He, no, he didn't. And neither yeah, did RSO, I, I guess, or not RSO. Yeah. yeah, no, it was RSO, wasn't it? I can't. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that was, yeah. A, bu- that was a bummer. <laughs> that was a low point of 1978. Boy, that's the truth. You know, The Clash, um, Give Them Enough Rope, was mm-hmm. their first, yeah. second album, but first album in the U.S., right? And that sort of got them American notice. And from there it took off because, um, you know, everybody started thinking of, oh, punk music is the clash, right? Instead of necessarily the Ramones or... Like Sex uh, Pistols or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting because it was punk, but it was also like soul and reggae. And so there was so much in there, right? That um, while not their best record, certainly, it's not the difficult second album. No, it's better definitely than the first not. One, right? You can je- definitely see an arc, right? But I think it's the one where Strummer's starting to really find his find his feet. Yeah, I love, I love that record. And it's interesting that it took him so long to get here, too. But like uh, Tommy Gunn, Tommy Gunn, I think, was mm-hmm. the first thing I heard from that in the English Civil War. Mm-hmm. I dated a girl named Julie. I always would play Julie's been working for the drug squad <laughs> as a test of <laughs> patience. Um, yeah, which is why I didn't marry Julie. <laughs> so, yeah. I would like to point out that uh, on a totally different 180 kind of here, but Elton John had a record out this year called The Single Man. This was kind mm. of the stopping point, I would say, of his, you know, massive four, yeah. five, six album, you know, through the roof success. But also, interestingly enough, it was one of the two records that Bernie Taupin was not involved with so gary mm-hmm. osborne was a lyricist for this record he did have a, a pretty decent hit with part-time love from this album but you, you, you're shaking your head I, no. I, don't, I don't even remember hearing that you're kidding time. me no oh, oh that yeah. was a pretty big i thought to me well to me it was but i yeah. also was a huge elton john fan so maybe i gravitated towards it when yeah. i was like maybe you know, but i just don't remember radio in my area ever playing oh, my i could sing it to you right now but i won't but um, well i i can't because when i read the title the first thing i think of is stevie wonder 
part-time uh, lover, which isn't oh, the same thing at all. No. But, so I don't even know. I don't even, I don't think I even know the song. It's you crazy. would. You, I, you, I'm gonna listen me, to it. I'm me, everybody's got a part-time love. That does sound kind of familiar, <laughs> but I would never have placed it had you not sung it. Maybe we won't put that, that in is the that episode. New, is that your new single? <laughs> Is that your new single, Stephanie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing oh, the backup did... vocals at the same time as the, anyway. Right. Um, yeah. So that was that wasn't uh, that was sort of like the beginning of a little bit yeah. of a downward peak in yeah. downward valley, I should say, in his career. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting because '78, you've got people looking for like the traditional artists that they really really knew would do stuff. And they're like hurrying them to get records out because they're really trying to get past disco. And then you've got these traditional artists decide to make a quasi disco record, like we talked about with Rod Stewart, right? Um, which really wasn't a disco record, but it was getting played, yeah, in all the disco clubs. It right? was. Um, I mean, they, he was trying to. He was definitely trying to go that route. I think just to be commercial in a way. Yeah. So it, it's kind of an interesting time to watch how artists are positioning themselves. Yeah. Even are, some girls like the Rolling Stones had that kind of vibe. Yes, yes, yes. And everything, if they can turn anything into a quasi-disco record mm-hmm. and the Stones get a little more dancey, and that's a really good album. Yeah, that's a great some album. Some Girls is fantastic. But when Kiss's Double Platinum came out, they did a complete new recording of an early song, Strutter, and it has sort of a dancey beat to it. Yeah. So anybody who's anybody is trying to get on that train as the train is already kind of like leaving the station. It's like derailing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got a, I got a couple of things that I haven't been able to get in, get to yet. And so just super quick, um, there's pieces of eight by sticks. I'm a huge sticks fan and pieces of eight with uh, renegade and blue collar man. Great, great, great album. It's so good. And those aren't even the best songs on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, David Bowie, his second live album stage is so Good. God, I love that album so much. But Who Are You by The Who? Oh, gosh. God, that was huge. Um, yep. Here's one by, this is one that if we ever do a show on One Hit Wonders, I'm going to, this is going to be my my top pick. <laughs> Nicolette Larson. <laughs> oh, my God. That, that, the, her first album comes out and she had like five albums or something. And, and I never even knew that. Her first album had that hit it's gonna take a lot of love i still love that song to this day Mm -hmm. i love it so much and it's still probably one of my favorite songs from 1978 you know you could never name another record by nicolette larson no sadly but that one hit did really really well and nothing after that yeah you we gotta name art records though yeah. Yeah. Dog and Butterfly that year. Yeah. yeah. And was Magazine out? Magazine was out that year. Yeah. Well, that was that, you know, when they oh, yeah. they recorded it, they started it in 77 and they got pissed off at their record label, which if you want to know the story behind that, or at least part of the story behind that, you can listen to our episode where we interviewed Michael DeRozier and Steve Fawson from Heart. They tell us all about what a shit show that thing was. They left the label. Epic picked them up and they recorded Little Queen, but the court 
said, you still owe your record label. We'll let you out of out of your contract with Mushroom Records, but you still owe them a finished second album. So they had to go back to the studio and finish Magazine, which is their second album slash. It came out after Little Queens, and now it's their third album. Crazy. So it came out at the beginning of 78, and then their fourth album, Dog and Butterfly, came out toward the end of 78. Yeah, they had a lot of stuff going on. They had a, they had a crazy <laughs> couple of years, like chaos couple of years. Yeah. But such but, good songs from Dog and Butterfly, like Straight On, of course, Dog and Butterfly, and Lighter Touch. What? And Mistral Wind. Ugh. Lighter, yeah. Oh, Mistral Wind. So, oh, yeah. So I need to send you the video of my band playing <gasps> yes. Mistral Wind because we just did it last weekend for the first time. Yes. And you were telling Steve Fossen and Michael DeRozier that you were going to do right. that. And they were very excited. That's right. So I have to send them links to it tonight. Awesome. Okay. Yes. Um, but my favorite song on the album is uh, Cook With Fire, the opening Ooh. track. God, I love that song. And I'm, I'm trying to, we, our band has played it once it's so hard to get right it's hard to make it sound good yeah so oh my god so we're gonna keep working on it until you know we get it to where we want it but man i love that song so much i think my favorite on there is straight on i love we the way one. it comes in it, it's just the 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 yep. beat of the, the four on the floor mm -hmm. and then it, yeah, yeah she's like quite some time like it's so great how it just like kicks in it's so interesting, too, because in the 80s, I saw them every tour they did. And mm -hmm. in the 80s, that was the song that they would try to fool you because they would start it a completely different way. It would have a reggae beat or it would have oh. something else, you know, and they and then it would come to a break and then she would go quite some time. And you're yeah. like, oh, OK. So it got <laughs> to the point where like the third tour in a row, they play some weird like kind of jammy kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, so this is how they're starting <laughs> straight on this year. And it That's was funny. <laughs> That's cool. But when I saw them in 2016, um, they did this really cool thing where they're playing straight on and they, I think in the, either they led into it or they uh, did a break and in into a James Brown song, oh, buddy, cool. it was freaking awesome. awesome. Freaking awesome. Cool. So, yep. 1978 was, uh, this, this will show the complete, um, parallel, uh, your, just how bizarre the year was, right? The parallel lines of 1978. <laughs> no, I was trying to avoid that, but no, uh, oh, okay. just the disparity of 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 everything. Yeah, uh, that's the year that Ava released "Take a Chance on Me," right, as a single. Mm. But it's also the year that uh, Throbbing Gristle released "DOA," the third and final report of Throbbing Gristle. Yeah, that's right. Which is their second album. Uh, it's my favorite of the Throbbing Gristle records. A huge record for uh, industrial music. Uh, it would, it would uh, be a huge influence on a guy uh, you might have heard of named Trent Reznor. Just kind of in terms of like the, the whole noise and industrial movement, it just nothing else sounded like it, really, mm -hmm. and still does. Um, yeah, yeah. And you got to – I like Throbbing Gristle, but, man, you got to be in a certain space to listen to it. That's the truth. That is the truth. And, you know, when you're talking about listening to the songs the machines make, you have to we have to mention Man Machine by Kraftwerk. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about a lot of amazing stuff this year, but there's one that was a huge hit everywhere in the world except for America. And mm -hmm. I had never heard it ever. I didn't even know it existed until last year when it got featured in a Doctor Who episode. And that is yep. Boney M releases the album Night Flight to Venus with this amazing single, Ra Ra Rasputin, Russia's greatest love machine. 
a song what? about Rasputin. It's crazy. <laughs> later, later covered by uh, Birmingham, England's uh, I Start Counting. I don't even know what you're talking about, people. So there's a band called I Start Counting <laughs> that's from Birmingham. They were on, they were later signed to Mute. But not only did they record that, and what's weirdly how that whole thing gets weird is they would put Doctor Who samples in their records and hide them. Mm. So hmm. it okay. all comes circular. And but yeah. That, I don't even know the song or that song, Alan. No, I, I don't either. Boney, I, I didn't know who Boney Am was until the 80s when they were showing up in smash hits and stuff. I'm like, what the hell is this? Right? I, I'd heard the name Boney M. I don't but think I never, I've ever heard a song until nope. that Doctor Who episode. Yeah. So, Stephanie, we just got to get you watching Doctor Who. I guess so, because I have not is, seen ever, one ever. It is the funnel through which all cultural <laughs> importance comes to you. Apparently. Yeah. All right. Well. Man, 1978 was a fun year, and this was a great discussion. I'm, I'm, if if you people who are listening, if you have stuff that you love from 1978 that we didn't cover, let us know. You can email yes. us at modernmusicology one, the number one, at gmail.com, or just leave a comment on our Facebook page or wherever you find your the episode that you're listening to, and we will talk about it the next time we record. So we are going to take a quick break and then we're going to be right back with some listener feedback and our picks of the week. So don't go anywhere. Hey, hey, we're Monkeying Around, a podcast about the monkeys. Almost 12 years old. Davy Jones was it for me. (laughs) I was having problems dancing and tambourining. I got overzealous (laughs) and overly excited. Like we've had our own little version of Monkey Mania 50 years later, which is just crazy. Be sure to like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and monkeyingaround.com. All right, we are back. And we got a lot of great feedback from uh, one of, from our most recent episode, Two or Three Hit Wonders. And there's one that I want to highlight. This is from, and I, I apologize that I don't know how to pronounce the last name, Eric I don't even know. I don't even know how to pronounce Good it. Job. I'm not Good even going to make a guess because I'll say it wrong and then I'll feel stupid and embarrassed. But he mentioned a number of ones that um, that uh, at least one got mentioned in in the episode, but the other ones I don't think did. Ice House, which Ice. that is that I would never have thought to put that on my list had I been in the episode, but. Um, I loved the first single that I heard by them was the song Ice House. Yeah. Oh, my God, I love it so much. Yeah, we forgot that. Information Society. Oh, yeah. Escape Club. I think I mentioned them. You might have, yeah. Escape Club, though, I don't know of any song other than one. I would never have thought to put them on a two to three hit. Some of these, that's one of the things we were talking about. Like some of them, yeah. you even though they had two hits or three hits, you only really did remember one, you know? Right, right. And then he mentioned Sheila E., which I know you guys did mention quickly in the episode. Yeah. But, um, and she's an interesting case because when you're talking, about, you know, first of all, like you say, you have to define the criteria that you're using for hit, which um, for me is it enters the top 40 of the billboard hot 100 chart. Okay. But if you look at different charts, so we talked about, you know, and he mentions aha also, which was massive everywhere in the world, except America, America, they had two hits, two songs in the top 40. I think we talked um, about that. 
<clears throat> but Sheila E., when you, even if you're talking, limiting it to one area, you have to talk about more than one chart because on the Hot 100, Sheila E. is a three-hit wonder. So she totally counts in, in as far as our discussion goes. But if you use the U.S. Hot R&B chart, she had quite a few more hits than that. She mm-hmm. had songs that never really made it at all on the Hot 100 that were in the top 10 or top five on the R&B chart. And uh, her third of the three top 40 hits in, uh, on the Hot 100, Bella St. Mark, did diddly squat on the R&B chart. So mm. she's an interesting one to look at because she has a completely different success record on both of those two charts and not even with the same songs. Yeah. So it's really cool because she has Cuckoo and uh, from the, her third album, Cuckoo and uh, Hold Me, which were both like top five singles on the R&B chart, didn't mm-hmm. do squat on the on the Hot 100. So it's really interesting to look at. So anyway, thanks, Eric, for giving this uh, feedback and uh, all the other folks who commented. We are really appreciate it. So let's go to our picks of the week. Rob, what's been spinning in your head? Um, <laughs> mucus. Um, <laughs> aside from that. Poor Rob. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so spinning around in my head, a um, couple things. Uh, there's a uh, new solo record coming from Jessica Weiss from this band called Fear of Men, but she has a, a single, uh, it's her solo album, but she's billing herself as new German cinema. It's called Being Dead. If you're a fan of like Mazzy Star or Beach House, that's mm, kind of yeah. in, your, in your wheelhouse. Uh, so look for that. Also, Leah Neal, Star Eaters Delight. She's from Virginia. She grew up on a farm. Um, Steph, this is right in your wheelhouse, man. It's so great. Oh, cool. Okay. She makes, she makes amazing records. Leo Neal, yeah. And then a really catchy pop band that has made records so friggin' catchy um, that it's painful, right? Um, they're called Royal Otis, and they have an album called Sofa Kings. And they're just very slowly building a thing. And then mm-hmm. a band called East East, I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's, it's IST, IST, so it's some kind of German thing I don't, but I think it's East East. Um, their album is called uh, Protagonist. It came out in March. They're from Manchester. Um, kind of like the Idols or another band that came out in 1978, Gang of Four. Um, sort of that sort of post-punk thing, which is really, really good. And then also I want to recommend a documentary uh, that was on Showtime recently that I watched during the free two days or whatever they give you of, of Showtime. <laughs> um, it's a documentary called uh, Sisters with Transistors. Um, which oh, was yes. moderated by Lori, or narrated by Lori Anderson, and it talks about the role that females played in the development of electronic music. And yes. it's amazing; it's absolutely amazing. I heard great things about that. As someone yes. who's a, as someone who's a really um, serious Delia Derbyshire nerd, um, th- this whole thing was like incredibly amazing for me. So I do recommend that. Awesome. Well, the only the only new thing that I've listened to this week is and this was something that I was waiting for and really excited about. Um, and that's the new Susanna Hoffs record, The oh Deep End, which is yet another covers album from her. And I, I just don't get into covers. I mean, I like good covers, but I don't like I, I just get when artists do nothing but covers albums, I just kind of get tired of it. And the first single came out a few weeks ago under my thumb, the Rolling Stones cover, and I just did not like it. 
Hmm. Just don't like it. So I was kind of going into the new album with that as my first impression. And, and it's okay. I mean, it's the whole okay. thing. It just, yeah, it's yeah. fine. It just doesn't really. And I'm so disappointed that I don't mm-hmm. love it, you know? Yeah. But it's uh, weird. Um, she dropped her album and her book on the same and her, day. And her oh, new right. novel. I do yes. want to get that book. Yeah. Yes. So I, I have high hopes for the new novel, uh, which I can't remember the name of. But if you search Susanna Hoffs on Amazon, both of these two new things will come up. Yeah. So anyway, so that's been my thing. And I just, um, yeah, it's all right. And I and I oh. passed this week. I, I've been listening to nothing. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. You've been busy. I've been a little busy. It's okay. <laughs> all right. So. Next week, we will be back. We are going to be talking about the 27 Club. And everybody knows what that is. A cheery topic. Right. Exactly. Everybody knows what that is. That is all these artists that died at age 27. And there are some obvious ones that everyone knows, and that's Hendrix and Joplin and Kurt Cobain and, you know, people like that. But there's a lot of other people, too that all died at age 27. So we're going to dive into that. And I'm looking forward to the morbidity of that discussion. (laughs) (laughs) So until next week, Stephanie, where can folks find more of you? Well, you can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour music. You can find me on Instagram at there underscore R underscore birds. You can find me on my website at there are birds.com. And uh, Bandcamp under just my name, Stephanie Seymour, and then on all the streaming platforms like Spotify and stuff like that. Robert. So you can find me on KDHX every Wednesday night from 7 to 9 with Juxtaposition. Um, You can stream it. If you miss the show, it's okay because it's streaming uh, on the archive. So you can do whatever you're doing. You can take your llama to the mall and come home. And you can do what you got to do, um, kdhx.org. It's on 79 Central. It is uh, what my sister eloquently refers to as Fright Rock. So um, you can listen to that. Also, um, Mondays, 6 to 8, Greenwich Mean Time, 1 to 3 Eastern, 12 to 2 Central, is uh, Antics on Louder Than War Radio, which is my streaming online show on uh, the Louder Than War uh, radio network. And um, that's also archived on Mixcloud. And you can listen to the first six shows. Um, much like the 70s, when all these shows came out and they said a Quinn Martin production, um, the first four we like the Bill, a Bob Perry production. I kind of like the Quinn Martin type of thing. Um, so I was, yeah. And then uh, also you can find me on the uh, Weekend Justice podcast with NeatCoffee.com. All right. And I've got a little website called CosmicCreative.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C Creative.com. And I've got books that you can purchase, which you should if you're a Doctor Who fan. I've got podcasts that you I have links to all of those things. So go check it out. And we will be back next week with our buddy, Anthony. I think that all the four of us are going to be around next week. So I'm excited about that. We'll be talking about the 27 Club. Until then... Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And we'll see you next time. Keep rocking on. On, on, on. on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> <laughs>
any last song we want to sing to get in. <laughs> she drives me crazy. No. <laughs> like last week. <laughs> Never say goodbye. Say ciao. All right. All right. Bye, everybody. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.